Hi, Mac family. We are so glad and so happy that you have joined us today for worship. Um, and we want to also thank you for your continual support. And if you want to continue supporting our church, you can do it three ways. You can go to marietaadventist.org. Um, you can do it through the app Adventist Giving, or you can also mail in a check. Um, we hope that today's sermon is of great blessing for you, as well as the music. And happy Sabbath. family. I'm so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this Sabbath. You may have joined on Vimeo with the link that was just emailed to you, but I hope that most of you are watching on the Facebook premiere that's happening live right now. I've come to really enjoy interacting and participating throughout the worship time. In fact, throughout this message, there will be times and opportunities for you to answer questions or take a moment during songs to interact and comment. And if you're on Facebook, Chat back and forth with your church family and give answers to these questions there. And as we begin this morning, let's pause and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning as we worship you together, 
through music and through message, may we hear your voice clearly to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Newton said it best when he said, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's the law of cause and effect. When there's an action, you can expect there to be more action. When there's movement, something else is affected by that movement. You can expect it. You can count on it. You know what's going to happen. It's predictable. It is consistent. You can count on what is going to happen. For years, I've been following a group of Christian young adult men as they have become more and more popular. They're famous because of their unbelievable trick shots. In fact, when they first started out, people didn't believe that they were actually doing these trick shots. They'll shoot basketballs off the top of buildings and make the shot. They'll use bow and arrow to shoot moving targets as they ride in the back of pickup trucks. They're known as Dude Perfect. Well, because of all the amazing shots that they have made over the years, you kind of know what to expect. You know that when they go for it, they will always make it. And I don't know how many times it takes them to practice these shots before it happens, but they always make it. But just recently, they put out a video that was unexpected trick shots. In these shots, you don't know what the trick is until you watch till the very end. You don't know what is going to happen. So, because I enjoy Dude Perfect so much, I wanted to share them with you. And I've got several clips from their latest video that I'm going to play for you now. So let's see if you can figure out what's going to happen in the trick shot before it really happens. Here's the first one. It's called the gravity flipper. See if you can figure out which cup Ty is going to throw the ping pong ball into. Now here's the treehouse bucket. Here's Ty, he's ready to throw the basketball to make the shot. Is it going in that basket? Let's see. This is the treehouse bucket. Here we go, boys. This one's called the eight ball corner pocket. Let's see what happens. He's shooting, what happens here? Eight ball corner pocket. Oh, here's one of my favorites. So he's got this styrofoam airplane and he's about to throw it. Is he gonna hit the balloon? Let's see, can you expect what's gonna happen? You guys are probably thinking to yourself, what about the blue balloon? <laughs> and I could play more, but that would take away from the rest of the sermon. Those trick shots, they are completely unexpected. They aren't what you think. They're not anything that you imagined or what you thought was going to happen. Back in 2004, I started playing golf for the very first time and I was terrible. My first golf outing, a friend let me borrow a set of his clubs. Well, I didn't know that you were supposed to strap the clubs into the back of the golf cart before you take off. So when he took off, his shiny brand new clubs went sprawling all over the golf path. 
Then when we got to the first hole, I hit the ball as hard as I could trying to be impressive. Well, it sliced hard and headed straight for a plate glass window on the house just off the fairway. And it narrowly missed the window, but it slammed into the siding of the house. I was terrible and still I'm not that great. About a year later after my first golf experience, I was still terrible. And on the fourth or fifth hole of, the, of our home course in Calhoun, Georgia, the unexpected happened. My dad and I were playing together, both of us equally as bad. The fifth hole is a short par three. It's about 110 yards with an elevated green and this gully in between the tee box and the green. And so I pulled out my pitching wedge and I lined up my shot and I swung and it sounded good and it looked good as we traced it in the sky. And then it landed on the green and it started to roll and it rolled toward the flag. And then it disappeared. And I looked at my dad and he looked at me and we both said, could it be? Well, my dad hit his shot and then we raced up to the green. We couldn't see it anywhere. I looked beyond the green and around the green and I finally looked in the hole. Now, it had rained the day before, so the hole was full of water. And thinking that it was absolutely impossible that my ball was in that hole, I reached my hand down in there, and I pulled out a Nike One golf ball, the ball that I had hit that I would found somewhere else on the course earlier that day. I'd gotten a hole in one. That was the most unexpected gift that I could ever imagine. Completely unexpected. We've all had unexpected things happen to us. The guy in front of you at the drive-thru at Starbucks, he pays for your coffee. It's unexpected. It's nice. The police officer that lets you off with just a warning even though you were speeding 25, 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, the time that you ran out of gas while pulling into a gas station, that's unexpected. And for the next 30 seconds, Answer this question with the people that you're watching with or, or if you're on Facebook, answer it in the comment section. Here's the question. What is something unexpected that happened to you? We have all had unexpected experiences, but this morning we're going to look at the unexpected, something that you may have never felt or realized is a part of following Jesus. And my prayer is that you see the unexpected and may it move you forward in your journey as a follower of Jesus. About a year ago, as I was reading my Bible, I came across a passage that was like a slap in the face that challenged me and wowed me. I underlined that, that verse and wrote the word yes. In fact, here's what my Bible looks like. Right here in the column in the margin, I wrote that word yes with three exclamation points. This, this passage is a powerful passage that's at the root of living as a disciple, that someone that is fully devoted to Jesus, and it boldly shows the unexpected reaction that comes from an experience with Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, For Christ's love compels us. 
because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul says Christ's love compels us. Isn't that powerful? Now you have to see the context of these few verses to get the bigger picture. Paul, this fully devoted disciple of Jesus that is also a church planter that is going from city to city to preach the gospel, he writes this letter to the little church in the city of Corinth. But guess what? This isn't the first letter that he's written to them. In fact, there have been several letters that were written to the people of this church. In fact, this letter, which we call 2 Corinthians, Probably was the third letter, and there most likely was a, a, at least another letter that he wrote. And as Paul so often does, he pens letters to the churches as he hears about their struggles and their successes. Now, this letter is known as the severe letter. It's like Paul is pretty defensive for himself at several points in this letter, and here's why. After this little church in Corinth was started... Some men claiming to be apostles, they slid their way into the church. And as they quietly slipped in and built relationships with the church folk, they began undermining the foundational beliefs of the church, as well as undermining Paul by saying that he wasn't who he said he was. So Paul feels the need to defend himself. Now, I don't know about you, but there are many times in my life where I want to defend myself. There have been several times where someone has taken my words and shared them out of context or misinterpreted them and made it sound completely different than what I'd said. Or at one time in a previous church, I remember writing the newsletter and sending it to the secretary to format it in the document that she was using. But she wouldn't just copy and paste what I'd written. She would retype it all. And the problem was that she wasn't that fantastic at grammar. And so as she retyped all of my words, there'd be a myriad of mistakes. I remember one time in my two-paragraph newsletter thought that there were 17 errors that just made me look illiterate. And all I wanted to do was put a disclaimer defending myself and saying, I didn't make all those mistakes. It's easy to want to defend yourself. This one may be a little harder to do in 30 seconds, but you can do it if you're fast. Share with those that are watching with you or jot just a few words in the comment section to answer this question here. Here's the question. When have you had to defend yourself? We've all had to defend ourselves at some point, and Paul has every right to defend himself as these apostles are buddying up to his church family and undermining his ministry and authority as one that is leading others to Jesus. But it's not just Paul that they're undermining. They're attacking the very roots of Christianity and doctrine that is the basis for a discipled relationship with Jesus. And so Paul, he goes on the defensive And he shares what's happened in his life. And you remember what happened to Paul, right? It's one of the craziest stories in the Bible. It's a story that shows the unexpected, what you could never predict when someone encounters Jesus. 
Paul, before the unexpected happened, he was a jerk. But I don't mean the kind of jerk that trips the high school nerd as he walks down the hallway spilling his books all over the floor. I don't mean the jerk that stuffs somebody in a locker. Paul was worse. He even had a different name, Saul. And the way the Bible describes him was that he was breathing out murderous threats against disciples. Saul was a hating, murdering jerk that was a religious and very spiritual and committed to the cause. Yet he was traveling the land, hunting down Christian disciples that had experienced the unexpected when they fell in love with Jesus. He even gets permission from the high priest to go hunt them down and kill the followers of the way. And as he's on the way to Damascus, a light from heaven flashes around him. He falls to the ground and hears Jesus say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, that is unexpected. (laughs) He stands up and is blind for, for three days. And all he can do is live in darkness, thinking about living in the light. And three days later, Jesus uses a man named Ananias to work a miracle by giving Saul his sight, as well as an anointing by the Holy Spirit, as well as a new identity and name, Paul. Paul experiences something that's, that some experience and others don't. He experiences the unexpected. He experiences a conversion See, I believe there's a problem in Christianity, and it's a lack of conversion. So often, Christians live in a Christian bubble, only having Christian friends, only going to church with Christian brothers and sisters, only interacting with Christians, only going on playdates with our kids with other Christians, only going to school with other Christians. And pretty soon, our worldview looks more like a club than a mission field. And the more and more sheltering and huddling together of Christians makes complacent and apathetic Christians that have nothing to do with living a life as a disciple that makes disciples. And instead, the Christian movement that is supposed to sweep across the globe, it turns into a worship surface that happens once a week. All too often, Christians lack a conversion experience. We lack an experience that is unexpected. And sometimes I wish that each and every Christian on the planet had this conversion experience, an unexpected experience, because I believe that would transform us into the army of disciples that can't stop, won't stop sharing the unbelievable news about Jesus with everyone that we meet. I often dream of the day when Christians don't exist to consume, but rather they exist because of their conversions as fully devoted disciples that are compelled by the love of Christ to share His love to the world with each and every moment of your life. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. Now, when I think of being compelled, a lot of different thoughts come into mind. Being compelled can often sound like a bad thing, like a, a forced thing. Compulsion sometimes sounds like being obligated, like I was compelled to give them a ride home because I felt obligated, or um, I was compelled to do the dishes because mom made the food and so I had to help out a little bit, or I was compelled to give him five bucks because I'd feel guilty if I didn't. 
But there's no way that Paul is talking about a negative connotation when he writes about being compelled. He doesn't talk about being compelled like he's obligated, like he has to, like he doesn't really want to, but does it anyway. Paul talks like he gets to, and there's a huge difference between have to and get to. Have to feels like a job. It feels like you're ordered to do something, like your boss is looking over your shoulder so you close your Facebook tab on your computer because you have to get back to work. Have to looks like a requirement. Like you're forced to do community service so that the company looks good. Have to is forced. It's not something that you want to do, but it's something that you have to do. Get to is completely different. Get to looks kind of like this. Several years ago, I was driving home from the church. And as I passed by a small Catholic church, there was a very elderly lady that was in the parking lot standing outside of her car looking at her tire. And as I came up on her, I realized that she had a flat tire. Now I was wearing dress clothes and it was a million degrees outside. There's never a time in my life that I have wanted to walk around out in the heat in dress, dress clothes, never. The moment the temperature gets above 70 degrees, I start sweating. I'll sweat through my shirt, I'll sweat through my pants. I am a sweater. But as I got closer and realized the situation with this older lady, I was absolutely compelled to stop and help. I know how to change a tire. I can do it in my sleep. And while I didn't have to stop, every part of me shouted that I get to stop and help her. She was in need of something that I could do. So I quickly pulled over into the parking lot and got out and found the problem. She told me that she had hit a curb in the parking lot of Kroger just down the road, and now as she was driving home, her tire went flat. Well, just a few minutes later, the spare tire was on, she was on her way, and I was back in the air conditioning, and as I drove home, absolutely soaking wet, all I could think about was, that was great. I got to do that for her. And when Paul says that Christ's love compels him, his compulsion is not a have-to compulsion, but it's a get-to kind of being compelled. Paul basks in Christ's love for him, and it feels so good. It's outrageous, and it's completely unexpected, something that he never could have imagined it's not something that's planned. It's not something that he ever could think about. But once he experiences it, it changed him. He bathes in the grace poured out to him as a murdering sinner from a majestic Savior. Christ's love covers him and it compels him on God's mission. And as you listen to this song, grace flows down with Fabrice and Carissa and Melanie, may you bask in God's love for you.
As Paul experiences the unexpected and undeserved grace and love of Jesus, he is compelled. In fact, just a few verses later after he says he's, that he's compelled, in verse 20, Paul tells us what he's compelled to do and what you and I should be compelled to do. Here's what he says. We are therefore, because of the unbelievable love of Christ, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Y'all, this is crazy because the God of the universe not only gives us something unexpected and undeserved, but he allows us to share it with the rest of the world. And more than that, he's using us to help others experience something unexpected that will compel them too. He's appealing to others through us. And we do it not because we have to. We do it because we get to. Are you compelled this morning? Have you had the conversion experience with Jesus where you've received his unexpected love and it's caused you, no, compelled you to be his ambassador? One of my favorite parts of our church is the fact that we're not afraid to do something different. Not knowing how it will turn out, not knowing if it will make an impact, but we'll do it as best as possible to be ambassadors of Christ, to share God's love in a positive way. Not too long ago, and many of you will remember this, we hosted an event called Live Well Marietta right here in the parking lot of our church. And if you don't know what the event was, it was strictly aimed at the local homeless population here in Marietta. We had some 160, 170 church members come out that morning that met together in the parking lot to set up tables and chairs and start making food and help set up the shower truck and get the hair cutting station ready. There was a group that was dedicated just to pray with people. There was STD testing. There were nurses from Southern Adventist University that drove down for the day to participate. There were kids programs. There were chiropractors that came from Life University to help adjust people to make them feel more comfortable. It was awesome. And I saw our church 
compelled to do something powerful, being ambassadors of Christ as he appealed to them through our love, sharing his love to them. We didn't care if our guests smelled. We didn't care if it felt awkward. We were giving hugs and shaking hands and guiding the guests through the stations. We were getting plates of haystacks and serving them at the table. It was awesome. But I distinctly remember one station that I don't know if I could have served at. It was the foot care station. It was the station where there was a table piled high with brand new socks to give away. There were chairs set up facing each other to give foot massages. And I remember one of the first homeless guests that came onto our campus, and he was limping. Not because he had some old injury that he got serving our country. His shoes were untied as if to give some pressure relief to his tired feet. He had no home, and so his two feet were what kept him moving from place to place. They were blistered and red. His toenails needed some attention and help. And I'm sure his feet smelled terrible. So off to the foot care station he went. And when he got there, one of our church members, Chad Harlan, was ready for him. Chad had gloves on and was ready to take care of his feet. He took off his shoes. He massaged his feet. He rubbed the calluses. He rubbed the sore spots where his shoes had rubbed over and over. And as he cared for this man's feet, he didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because of his experience with Christ, experiencing the unexpected, the undeserving love of Christ. And because of this experience, he was Christ's ambassador as he shared God's love with someone else. I believe that once you experience the love of Christ and become converted to more than a Christian, but become a true disciple, it's then that God uses you as an ambassador as he appeals to others through you. May you know his love for you and may it compel you to share his love with others.
Grace is 